Maddie, or better known as the American Gopnik. Mate, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Of course, it seemed like an interesting opportunity. So why not? Yeah, no, I hope it's interesting enough. Um, look, can you just start, I guess, who are, who are you? What was your background before going uh, to Ukraine to serve? Well, um, I had sort of two jobs or interests that both worked out to be related to this. Um, in my uh, normal day-to-day life, I worked in private security, doing things like uh, close protection work, um, some uh, workplace violence stuff, as well as uh, a few uh, federal government contracts. And I was actually supposed to take a, a force protection contract for the um, NATO uh, K-4 base in Kosovo before I came here. And I just came here instead. And then my other thing that I did, which is what I'm more well known for, is I had sort of a side project as a um, open source intelligence journalist focusing on uh, conflict. So those two sort of professions ended up leading me to here. And this is something that's very interesting about your story that we'll jump into is your journalism side and then your combatant side. Can you, you sort of talk about where that where that then had that shift? Well, for me, um, what had what caused that shift for me was uh, my time spent covering the start of the full-scale invasion in Ukraine. Because one thing you keep running into, especially early on, is that when you go through this, there's so many people that have been mobilized and are actively fighting that had no past experience as soldiers. They had no previous weapon training. They had no plans or experience or any other reason that they would be fighting aside from the fact that they had no other choice. And after a few weeks for me, it was, it was very difficult to spend 10, 12 hours a day just watching this sort of thing while sitting at home and thinking, well, I, I have like a decent amount of relevant training. I'm in good shape. There's no reason why I could not do this and why I'm not more prepared than a lot of people that are already having to fight. And so eventually I just said, fuck it, I'm going to go. So broke the lease on my apartment, soldier gave away most of my stuff, packed up all my gear into a couple of bags and got a one-way plane ticket to Poland. Yeah. And had you spent time in Ukraine previously? Nope. Uh, first first time in Ukraine was uh, in um, late March yeah, sure. of 2022. And how was that sort of first impression? Because late March 22, if I think back, was... Kiev just liberated on the outskirts or just getting pushing back the Russians then? I'm trying to get, uh, it's all a blur about that time yeah. uh, for me. So when I arrived, the battle for Kiev was act- actively going on and the curfew time started at like something like 9 p.m. Yeah, And so I got to the train station after curfew and I was basically just stuck in the train station all night. There's, um, and uh, I just remember uh, just standing on one of the platforms outside and smoke, smoking a cigarette, and I could hear grads and uh, smirches just shooting cluster munitions in the outskirts of the city. You could actually, you, you could hear the artillery duel from the Kiev Central train station. Yeah, it was a, it was a wild time uh, around then in in the country, man. And it's hard when you're there, you know, post that that you're like, how could that actually happen? It seems so surreal. Yeah, no, um, it was, Ukraine is drastically calmed down and society is much more business as usual at this stage. But for the first like four or five months, 
things were much more chaotic and uh, very different, um, especially like during the uh, sort of battle for Kiev time when the entire country had shut down. Um, it was honestly pretty grim. There was like a one day, a few days after I got here, I went to a grocery store just to get some food. And um, I, I remember just going over by the vegetables and seeing that literally all of the onions were rotting. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I was just, I, I had this thought where I was like, this is not good. <laughs> Yeah. Did you have a feel of like, what have I fucking stepped into here? Yeah, I was, um, I, I definitely had a moment of, uh, maybe I should have planned this a little bit better because, um, when I originally came, my plan was just to go, go straight here, join the international legion. Let's go. Then while I was basically in transit from the United States, the, uh, base at Yavriv got blown up. And so when I got to Poland, I, my thought process was, wait a second the legion seems to like have at least temporarily collapsed i need to start looking for alternatives and so that delayed me for a couple of weeks and then because of just how there were so many issues with integrating foreign volunteers into units and basically this was when new foreigner groups were being formed and then collapsing on themselves into drama like overnight like on a daily basis when i by the time i got to kiev like my initial plan for where i was going fell apart and it actually took me like three and a half four weeks before i uh even like got into an actual unit of any kind you know that time in the war the the foreign groups were all over the place i remember talking to some guys and it was yeah it's just absolute mess in there at that time because it was you know it was a desperate time no one knew if there was going to be a ukraine in the next day two days week like in in that in that beginnings of the war, it was, it was so crazy because at the end of the day, we still thought Russia was the Russia. We thought it was previous to that invasion, if that made sense. And military guys, you know, you have that propaganda belief, I guess, for an amount of time, because the Western militaries thrived off that propaganda for decades of like, you guys are training to fight a near peer enemy at the same as you. And it was, it was just crazy. It was a real fight for survival right in the city centers as well yeah I, I think the trap that a lot of people fall into when looking at the russian or chinese militaries is um they look at the way the united states military or other nato militaries deal with um publicity regarding their technology and capabilities like when the united states has a piece of technology be that the patriot sam system or the m1a2 set v3 abrams or something like that the capabilities generally moderately to heavily exceed what is publicly disclosed. So when the United States military says that this piece of technology can do X, it can generally do more than that. And X was the absolute minimum that the contract allowed. And the contractor made sure to well exceed those standards so they wouldn't get in trouble. So when you look at America's capabilities, you know that it's better than whatever is stated. Russia and China do not do that. A lot of the times they it's since their cultures tend to more focus on sort of face and showing the appearance of strength, they tend to overly inflate the public specifications of what their gear can do. And so the result is that when a lot of Western analysts and journalists just look at that information, they take it at face value and goes, well, I know that we do this where we understate our capabilities. And that's why like so much of our tech is classified and all that. They must do the same thing. So if this is what they claim they have, we don't know how much better it actually is. And that turned out to be bullshit. Like 
none of their stuff works as advertised to the point where Rostex market has been drying up pretty steadily over the last two or three years because a lot of people are very disappointed with the performance that their products actually uh, are capable of. Yeah, and that was a huge thing for Russia was the export of those weapon systems from tanks, weapons, planes, all of that as well. And there has been a lot of rumor, well, not only rumor, there's been a lot of talk about countries being like, well, we've seen how this has performed. We're not happy with it. We don't want it. And you see with the US or Australia, one of these countries, when we have a good bit of kit, the export market opens up of like, that's great. We want that. So, yeah. I, I mean, right now that's been especially evident with the Bradley, just because the, the Bradleys that are being used in Ukraine are like the first generation unupgraded ones that were available in the uh, late 1980s or something like that. And they've incredibly overperformed, not just against other um, Russian IFVs like the BMP-3, but they've even killed a surprising number of Russia's main battle tanks. And so it's, they uh, BAE in the UK has actually restarted production of the Bradley. Yeah. Like, and that's a piece of late Cold War tech that is outperforming Russia's post-Cold War equipment. It's really bad for uh, Rostec. And um, what I've been observing, too, over the last uh, year or so is that Russia's killed its own export market, not just through having their stuff underperform, but also they've actually been going, they've lost so much hardware that now they've been going to their customers like Brazil and India and actually asking them to return their gear, return the equipment they purchased so they can use it here. Like, there was actually um, an incident where uh, a bunch of um, Indian T-90s were uh, basically in Russia for repair when the full-scale invasion started, and Russia just kept them. They never sent them back. Uh, I believe Armenia is currently waiting on a $400 million arms purchase from the Russian government they made in 2021 that still hasn't been delivered. And Russia is showing no indication of actually delivering it. So, Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big, it's a big issue for, you know, and especially, you know, you know how important that that military economy is for your own economy of, you know, producing goods, exporting those goods and, you know, Russia being sanctioned by many places. That's just one other outlet that is limiting, limiting itself as it goes. One interesting thing I've noticed is that France actually seems to have been eating a good chunk of Russia's market share alive because they're willing to sell to a lot of people that like the United United States, the UK and Germany aren't. And they've been making a ton of sales of the uh, Raphael. Oh, really? Like, or Rafale. Yeah. No, it's they, they have a ton of contracts for like um, some Middle Eastern and Asian countries or African countries that are like not Western aligned, but not sanctioned either. And yeah, it's just Russia absolutely screwed themselves, at least when it comes to their arms export business. Money's going to go where money money goes. But I guess on the flip side of that, too, there are pieces of equipment that have performed well that i guess people will look into so like the as far as my reading it's like the car 52 helicopter has actually performed fairly well there are countries looking at that as as an option as well well i mean the alligator has done pretty well the only problem is they're running out of them like something like uh 60 are either grounded for maintenance issues or have been destroyed there's and the ones that are grounded for maintenance issues, they are not actually capable of fixing them. So while it's a decent helicopter from all accounts, it, it seems like they can't actually build more of them anymore because they were dependent on uh, imports for, I suspect, things like avionics and the like. So, yeah, 
I mean, it might have been a decent helicopter, but what does that matter if they can't build them anymore? True. Uh, I don't, from the Australian Army, I, we can't speak about bloody helicopters not, not being grounded the entire time. I've, I've never been aboard. I spent six and a half years in the Australian Army, and I saw a helicopter about once. Where <laughs> Our fleet is just permanently grounded. But to, to oh, didn't you guys buy into the Eurocopter or something? Bro, don't bring it up. We bought the we bought the Eurocopter Tigers and then, like the ARH Tiger, and then we bought the MRH ninety. The MRH ninety people should have been charged with bloody murder or minimum land manslaughter over that. It has actively, to be honest, I think we got away lucky with how like it. Yes, it's killed many people, but it has killed less than I think the quality of the helicopter should have. And the ARH. Uh, that that when we had the Apache as an option, like we could have Apache, it fits with all our other systems. Like Australia is a completely Americanized army. We've got F-18s, F-35s, all this other quick kit, everything's Harris, whatever. And we're going to buy this ARH that has nothing, like shit. Uh, like, and now we're going to, now we're going back to Blackhawks, back to Apaches. And it's like, well, not back to Apache, but getting Apaches. Like what the fuck? Same with the org, like the style we shoot it's Austrian built. It's the reason it's got to be trigger guard is for snow gloves. And it's like, we're Australians. Like how often are we going to ever be in the snow? <laughs> no, that's fair. Um, I know the uh, MRH 90 has actually been so bad that the uh, Norwegian military recently basically said they are returning literally every single one they have. They're just, they're sending them back and just getting their money back. Right. mainly because they couldn't even get enough like repair parts to maintain them they they i think were able to run them for half of the intended flight hours for the program just because the uh, manufacturer couldn't supply enough parts for maintenance that like doesn't surprise me at all with yeah the military but all militaries do this there's bits of fantastic equipment and bits of just shit and you're like how did you not how did you guys not come together with this like i'm a dumb private soldier and i could have told you that's not a good option like <laughs> like but you know it's probably people getting their pockets lined somewhere up the top i always assume that there's like some sort of like really like grim cynical spreadsheet somewhere where they're like is the human cost or the pain in the ass level of the problems with this system more of a more expensive than replacing it with something better and if the answer is no the solution is that eh, well tough shit like I don't know. Did you ever get to um get trained on the uh, Stinger? Uh, no, I've never, no, I've never been trained on it, but yeah. So the Stinger is, I think it's like a mid to late 70s design. It has got to be one of the most user-unfriendly pieces of kit yeah. I have ever touched. Um, it, it has such features as uh, the battery that actually, like, powers the uh, command launch unit and fires off the missile once you start priming it like trying to lock onto an aircraft you get 40 to 50 seconds not 50 seconds or 40 seconds exactly no 40 to 50 so like you have a 10 second window where it could just die on you where you can actually use it if you don't launch it after you start priming it within that window you have to put another battery in which is why every missile comes with three batteries um if you do successfully launch it um you then immediately need to unscrew the battery and drop it on the ground because the battery heats up to about 400 degrees Celsius. And if you do not immediately strip it out of the command launch unit, you will just melt it. Right. Oh, and also there's glass over the uh, sensor on the missile in the tube. And so when you fire it, it has a not 
pretty good chance actually of just launching a bunch of broken glass shards into your face. And in the name of uh, protecting you, there is a piece of plexiglass about the size of a quarter that sits over your non-dominant eye that isn't looking through the site. It's, it's typical. It's typical military. Yeah, people people think military equipment is like the be all end all, and you see like hikers and these uh, bloody role players and stuff are like military grades. You're like anyone who's in the military is like, no, 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 that sucks. Like that, whatever that 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 sucks because. You think like what we're talking about with American military equipment that it's classified level and then it's a you know step of 10, 20% better again. Yeah. Imagine how much better the the non-lowest bidder was. That like at the end of the day, we've got the lowest bidder that filled the contract and it's still better. We all know that there's a better system somewhere, but we just can't afford it. Well, they didn't want to afford it. Yeah. And I mean, the issue with the stringer though is on one hand, I hate it. I do not want to ever have to fire it. But I can understand why it has not been substantially improved. And that's because, as it is, the Stinger is a decent man pad. It works pretty well. And also, how much of a, excuse me, how much of American military doctrine actually involves the use of man pads? Yeah. Pretty much none. Like, the man pad is something that's, like, distributed to allies and occasionally used by, like, certain special operations forces it's something that never really gets used so there's no there's no need to throw more money at it especially when it still works so no i i feel you there's plenty of things that it's good enough it's good enough so after that after you got to kiev and you spent that you know three and a half weeks whatever it was finding a unit where to go how, how did that go from there oh it was an absolute disaster um <laughs> right <laughs> So I ended up with like a, a separate company of what was supposed to be a Marine Special Operations Unit consisting of uh, basically entirely foreigners with just some Ukrainian command staff. The unit was supposed to have like private funding and stuff like that. And we were all supposed to get contracts. Um, happened. We didn't get contracts. We filled out paperwork to uh, start the process for contracts. They never arrived. After a few weeks there, like no one was getting paid and um, generally a unit cohesion was quite low. Uh, no one there liked each other. There was one team, uh, British, that I was not on. And then there was uh, an, the team that I was on um, was a mix of like Americans uh, with some Canadians and Latin Americans. Was, and then um, th we also did not get along at all well with the British team. And then the rest of the unit was a bunch of Georgians who uh, didn't even really get along with each other. So um, there, there was a few times where there was almost some actual uh, physical conflicts. Um, we were then uh, told um, after like people started getting really antsy that there was a uh, high level intelligence suggested that Russia was about to launch a second attack on Kiev from Belarus with uh 54 attack helicopters and uh, 800 VDV. Um, and this was also happening anywhere in the next uh, 48 to 72 hours. So we were all basically told, yeah, you're going to need to go and set up defensive positions outside of Kiev to prepare for this assault. <sighs> this led to me getting the worst op order I've ever received in my life. Um, it wasn't bad in the sense of like my uh, team leader did a bad job delivering. It was bad in the sense of um, if this is real, we're all going to die. Uh, 
it was something like a uh, mission, right? Just go out um, or situation was we're getting attacked by all these people in the next three days. And this is a, a company sized element at best, more like a platoon and a half. Um, like uh, mission, um, slow them down as much as possible before someone else can come. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Execution. Uh, we're going to go out into this swamp outside of Kiev and dig a primary defensive line, a secondary defensive line, and build a patrol base. Yeah, as I said, in a swamp. We're supposed to dig trenches in a swamp. Yep, that'll, that'll help. Um, yeah, uh, our supporting element was uh, a territorial uh, defense uh, unit consisting of 26 rifles. Um, when my team leader asked them, like, do you mean 26 people? There's like, no, 26 rifles. So it could have been like two guys in the truck with just a bunch of rifles in the back. Yeah. <laughs> then, um, yeah, just like no fire support, no, like literally nothing for command and signal. It's, uh, it was like, uh, we're going to have radios. Okay. Well, what kind of radios? How many radios? There will be radios. Uh, but like, how, how are we planning this? Worry about your own squad. Um, then also both the, uh, like company commander and uh, his deputy were going to be at the same command post anywhere from 500 meters to 20 kilometers away from the uh, line. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> so all this, it's, it's just shit like that over and over. Like anytime anyone had a question, it was, eh, they said, uh, worry about your own squad or, uh, don't worry about it. So we, we were all getting ready for that, and uh, then on the morning we were supposed to push out, um, my entire team quit. And the reason for that was that there was one guy on the team who had actually uh, – I joined after Irpin and Bucha, but that team was actually in Irpin and Bucha. And there was one guy that stepped on a nail and got a really bad foot infection. And they were basically, like, denying him medical care, claiming that he must have injured his foot before he went out on mission because there's no way it could get that infected that fast. Right. Oh, it can absolutely get yeah, yeah and, and they're, they're just they're just fucking him around and at the time people that had been like in a military unit if they didn't get papers that said basically they'd been released from the military there was an issue where they'd basically just have all of their tactical gear stolen at the border so really yeah and my team leader has been trying to get this guy basically his uh release letter for the last like two or three weeks by the time this roll around rolls around and they still haven't given it to him and so before we were supposed to go out, he was like, look, before we go out, I need you to get him his papers. Because if your intelligence is accurate, none of us are coming back from this. He's not going out on mission. He barely even speaks English. So um, if like the people that do go out die, there's not going to be anyone that can help him with this. Yeah. And they basically said, we'll deal with it later. So we all ended up walking. And it didn't matter because the mission was most likely made up just to keep people there for an extra few weeks. Um, th there was no uh, large-scale air assault on Kiev after that point. Um, the people that were told 48 to 72 hours in the swamps ended up spending uh, two and a half weeks there. Um, and then the Georgians that didn't go on mission ended up having a, a stabbing-related incident on a base in the kitchen a few days later. So, Shit. Well, around that time, you know, we were hearing a lot about that these foreign elements were getting sent on like literal suicide missions with a couple of magazines and a few radios and 
Hey, what do you make of that? Because I, I talk to people who go, that's complete bullshit. I talk to guys who go, look, it wasn't far off that at that point, but the, it was a desperate time. I, I think it comes down mostly to a uh, disorganization and the very, very bureaucratic nature of um, essentially the way equipment is issued, at least at first, because basically the standard policy when you um, go and check out your weapon is your weapon comes with four magazines. And the only magazines they have in the armory are um, the magazines that are attached to the weapons, right? Or at least this is the way it was for a long time. So the idea being like you get your weapon in four magazines because that's what normally issued. Well, obviously you need more than four magazines. Well, we can't issue you more than four, four magazines because we need the magazines for everyone else that's getting issued weapons. So that's how you get instances where people are only going out with four magazines because that's all they can issue them. Um, it's not nearly as much of a problem now. Uh, especially with a lot more units using um, NATO standard rifles because you can just buy PMAGs. Uh, and also, I never had... Uh, I ne Subsequently, like on my actual combat deployments, I never went out like without enough magazines. I, I was never like issued just four magazines and told that's it. Um, for my first deployment, for example, I was only issued four magazines with my rifle, but aside from that there were just like buckets of magazines elsewhere that you could just pull from it there was so much ammo that like we had a uh range um at the fob and you could just go out and shoot like 200 rounds a day if you wanted to it wasn't an issue yeah right well that, it's good that that's that's not an issue there because yeah you i'd heard some bloody horror stories about about the legion at, at points around that time yeah um I will say the normal international legion has never not been a disaster. Like there are foreigner elements here that are effective and do a lot of stuff, but the like core base international legion, the one that now will basically take anyone that has always been a mess. And that never changes. Um, it was created more as like a political statement than an actual attempt to form like an effective fighting force. And this is really reflected in the fact that Legion recruiting will go and take everyone that signs up that actually has like, it's not even just special operations, but like anyone, most people that apply to join the International Legion that have like multiple combat tours as infantry and are highly experienced military professionals never get sent to the regular Legion. They all get sent off to several different um, sort of uh, direct action teams that are considered to be the uh, special operations and the people that end up going to the legion or the normal legion are people that did not serve in the military and do not have a lot of relevant experience people that served in the military but not in combat arms maybe some people in combat arms but no combat deployments so it's they don't do much when they do do things they have a horrible casualty rate um I know of some really solid guys that ended up there just because they kind of showed up and they're like, I'm here to join the Legion. and But they all leave pretty quickly. And the other issue is that they don't pick officers for the International Legion based on like people that have cross-trained with NATO, people that can speak English really well. The, the International Legion, from what I've observed, is basically a dumping ground for officers that like have dead careers or that no one wants to deal with, but they can't actually fire them. So they just put them over there and that's uh the deal with that so 
yeah, there there are good units here that have foreigners. There are foreigners here that like there there are foreigner containing units that do a lot. That are very very competent. That are well equipped and do things the right way. But the actual international legion proper, the big one that anyone can join, is a train wreck. Yeah, and and like you said, you know there there are other units out there, Western units, and as. You know, I'm not sure if you've heard this term, but we were calling a lot of people fictional characters who sort of went to Ukraine for their own Call of Duty fantasies and never left Kiev or never left the bloody strip club or bar in in Kiev, but walked around in multicams and <laughs> and, and took photos in the bushes, and and that was a bit of everywhere. There's a lot of these just pretenders getting around as well who do a lot of they do a lot of harm to reputation to to everything. Yeah, no, I uh, have a special dislike for a lot of those people because um, I, when I came here, I was always very open about the fact that I never served in the military before I came here. I'm like, look, I'm trained as an EMT. I have a bunch of like firearms training experience, and I've I already had some training on uh, small unit tactics and like CQB before I came here. I'm like, that's my experience. Don't have military. I'm very open and honest about this. And then there are all of these people that show up that just lie about being special operations. Yeah. And so for the first like six months or so that I was here, it was very hard for me to actually find a unit that I could get into because all of them were basically saying like, why should I take you when we have this guy over here? That's a seal. And he's not a seal. Like none of these people are. I'm pretty sure that at one point there were more uh, NATO uh, special operations guys in Ukraine than there are in actual, in actually NATO. Um, yeah, dude. I've never. It's it's a little bit like Vietnam. That everyone who served in Vietnam was a SEAL, SAS, or Delta, and it's like, well, there weren't that many guys doing that back then. And I've met I've met more guys who claim that the RSAS in Ukraine than I have in my whole military career as well. You're like, hang on. Um, look, I, I, you actually came across my radar. Um, firstly, when I saw a post, um, you mentioned you're an EMT about Ford Observation Group. Um, you know. Yeah, online play around around some medical um management. There, do you mind speaking to me about that? Because that 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 intrigued me, and then I was like, "Who's who's this bloke?" Because <laughs> a couple of my okay. mates shared your thing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, essentially, um, I was certified as an EMT when I lived in the United States. I did not actually work much in EMS because the pay is so bad that. I where I lived in Portland and basically when I finished EMT school they were paying a 1250 an hour for a 911 basics and I that that paid worse than my like really shitty unarmed security job that I had when I was in school so I just kept my certification active and kept on attending training and stuff like that because it helped me get better security jobs but I didn't really work in medicine much um then when I came to Ukraine, I actually didn't plan on being a combat medic. I was like, oh, like I can I can help out a little bit. But I was like, my level of training is wholly inadequate for that. But after I got here, I ended up um, working with a, a Norwegian combat medic a lot. And he kept telling me like, dude, you, you, you can do this. Just like, I'll teach you. Let's go. And so I he trained me a lot. Um, I got to attend... Uh, a combat medic course that near the start when I first got here that was run by a nurse that had served in the U.S. military. I did a bunch more training courses um, where I actually uh, assisted like as an assistant instructor with some stuff that was also really good training for me. 
And then uh, earlier this year, I actually finally went and got my proper uh, tier three T-Tri-C uh, certification. So I actually now have all of the uh, proper combat medic certifications to oh. um, like American standards. Good on you, Brad. Um, but yeah, uh, my, my issue with Ford Observations Group is that, uh, well, first of all, they're kind of on my shit list because they've posted pictures that they really shouldn't. Um, I'm not going to say which one, but like six months ago, they posted a picture that they said from like near Bakhmut of some guys in gear and stuff like that with guns. And the problem is that picture was of the staging area my last unit used before we ran ops into Bakhmut. And it was like very clear, easily, immediately. I saw it, I recognized it immediately. And when they posted the picture, I'm pretty sure it was still being used. And I actually messaged them. I was like, hey, guys, what are you doing? Take this shit down. And they just never responded to me. So um, it's it's Ford Operations Group is at basically the top of the list of clout chasing soft wannabe dickheads. Um, it's. Yeah. And as for the medical stuff, it's like there's some stuff when I when I when I watch their video where the guy breaks down his aid bag, like it starts off pretty strong. There's some good stuff there, but then it just veers off in this really weird direction where they want to like talk where they're talking about being really high speed. Essentially, they're trying to be different just for the sake of being different and cool. And it just at least personally left a bad taste in my mouth because over and over, because I got into it with the Ford operations group guy in the comments of my meme, actually. And he's basically arguing, oh, since we have like our evacuation and we push our resources so far forward we don't need to basically do what everyone else does. And by that, I mean, have certain basic things and basic capabilities with you. Like they have almost nothing for treating. My issue is the guy basically hollowed out his main aid bag to store a couple of units of whole blood at the cost of not having like anything for managing hypothermia um, and just generally heavily depleting um most of uh the supplies he might carry if he had more than one patient and i understand like whole blood is really cool but the issue is you when you have a trauma patient that's really badly fucked up yeah you want to get him blood the issue is you don't have to get him blood immediately it's not like you need to be giving him blood as your first thing your highest priorities are to control the bleeding and go through the rest of your march algorithm and actually like keep them warm and my whole thing is, well, well, great. If you're never more than 15 minutes away from your evac, why aren't you just saying, okay, we're going to give him blood on evac. Now I can carry twice as many medical supplies. So if more than one guy gets injured, I'm not screwed. So yeah. And then there's, there's some other weird shit there too. Like uh, one thing the guy uh, recommends said he does is he uses a drug called a TXA instead of a flush when preparing to give whole blood and that he says he pushes it very quickly. Um, the current guidance for TXA says it's a slow IV push medication because pushing it too fast can, uh, in some cases, cause a sudden drop in blood pressure, which you really don't want in a trauma patient. Or um, it also has a rare side effect, especially when pushed too fast of actually uh, causing seizures. And he, so he recommends pushing it fast. He's like, uh, uh, I don't know why if you're supposed to do that and I don't know what could go wrong, but like, uh, I don't know everything. It's like, dude, you do not know like the basic information necessary to properly administer this medication. Like 
it's right there. It's if you have gone through the, I did the latest tier three T3C learning material like three months ago. On the NARC section, it's right there with TXA. Drip over 10 minutes or slow IV push. You not push it fast. And I know that like, like some of the guidance might be changing on that. And they're starting to think that the downsides to pushing it fast are um, not as bad as initially thought. But my, I just have a problem with someone giving information that contradicts what the official guidance and care standard is. And then also not knowing why that advice is different from the standard that just really rubs me the wrong way. It's unprofessional and just makes me wonder like what other med related mistakes is this guy making? Yeah. And, and it's, it's a dangerous thing when it, when it, you're giving advice that isn't along guidelines. Like I'm not even sure where the legality sit on that around medicine. I know that's probably a bit of a blurry, blurry line there. If, it, if it's against like the guideline of specific elements or drugs, a good friend of mine, um, you may know uh, Dr. Dan Pronk. He was a, a doctor in the SAS for an amount of years. Um, oh, and, oh, is he, um, is, he's a, a cardiothoracic surgeon, right? No, he's, a, he's another. Cardi- oh, okay. No, no, I know. I know. Oh, who's that guy? I'm thinking. You, you know, I'm t- you know, um, what was, is it Greg? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh shit. I will think. You about know, Somewhere you know note. who I'm talking about, right? He's like yeah. cardiothoracic and um, there was, what was it? Uh, cardiothoracic and something else. I ran into him at the hospital, at one of the hospitals in Constantinivka on my last deployment. Yeah. Badasses. Like, you're like, how can you, I, I fucking hate people like that because I'm super low performance. I'm like, how are you also this level of an operator and this level of a doctor? I'm like, fuck off. Give me one of the two. Um but he's I'm, like, I'm, he's like 50 years old in amazing yeah. shape, but like never sleeps. And he was like, yeah, it's How are you? he's like, Oh yeah, no, I got to go home and like, see my, uh, my kids just moved out. I've got to go home and like move to a smaller house. Now it's like, yeah. All right. Uh, well, I know with, with, uh, with Dan, I've talked a little bit about um, wanting to do some like medical breakdowns with him about like, like trauma medicine. And he's like, oh, the, the hard thing is if it's much beyond you know, some of the real basics, you start getting into sort of gray zone around what's what. And he's like, and I'm a, I'm a full doctor. He's like, he's like, I'm a doctor who's been work, working trauma med for a number of years. And there's so much gray zone in this of what you can and can't do. What And, you know, it's so situationally dependent on uh, blood pressures. And, and, and as you know, with the use of morphine or ketamine or fentanyl around blood pressures and, and how everything goes and, and the doctrine changes on this, so quickly um it's it's one of the it's a it's a difficult thing but i'm yeah i'm glad you i'm glad you touched on it and i think you know there are a lot of people out there who are held to a high standard who need to at least if they're at that they need to maintain that standard or at least live up to where they are yeah no and the other thing that pops up a lot with military medicine is that the scope of practice for military medics is absolutely obscene relative to the actual level of training like um as a combat medic uh just not not a paramedic but just trained to the cmc standard for t3c i can do things like a surgical cricothyrotomy or um even like part of the course i was also trained on doing finger thoracostomy which is for like a tension pneumothorax where instead of just using a chest when like um the chest burping the chest seal is enough anymore or like needle decompression doesn't work 
it's where you basically make an incision yeah, um, between two ribs and stick your finger in it to open it up and let some air out. And I, I was trained on that. I was trained on uh, placing a chest tube. And this is something that in like normal civilian life, a lot of paramedics are not allowed to do. Yes. Oh, it's a wide scope. But, so I, I was a combat first aider yeah. um, in my time in the military. And I remember talking to some friends who worked in medical field. I was like, oh, I can yeah. do on deployment. I can do this. They're like, what? Like, and you've done like a three week course of like, yeah, <laughs> like, like oh, it'll be, no, that's like, exactly it. Like at the CLS level, they teach guys chest needle decompression. And yeah. once again, that's, that's a paramedic skill in, in the civilian world. Like, yeah. I've got a, I've got a needle tea in the bag behind me. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I'll carry that shit. And I'm like, I'll, I'll figure it out on the fly again. If I need to, I haven't done it one for a while, but we'll, we'll figure yeah, it out. Just, just remember your landmarks. The problem with that one isn't that it's hard. It's that if you fuck it up, you're going to kill the guy. <laughs> I know that's, that's the problem. And the thing is I work, I work solo. So it's going to be on myself. What's good. That's, ah, oh, that's, 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 that's uh, part of the game, isn't it? No, no. Um, look, as I sort of go back onto onto you, when um when did you first, I guess, have interaction in, I guess, contact with the Russian forces? Um, so I uh did not manage to get a combat deployment until um, January of 2023. It was not for lack of trying. It was just go to a unit wait for a long time things go to shit or we just aren't deploying nothing's happening like uh, um after uh eventually in um may late may of uh 2022 i ended up joining the normal international legion and from the first day i got to um my unit i was in uh first battalion alpha company um we uh we were 10 days out from deploying i left near the end of july when we were still 10 days out from deploying uh, and stuff like that happened, uh, one more time where, where I went to a, a territorial defense force unit and spent like three and a half, four months waiting for, uh, basically deployment orders or anything just ended up helping train a, a bunch of combat medics. And then, um, after basically getting dicked around in my contract for a while and, uh, everything kind of going to shit again. I just went with a couple of other guys to uh, a unit under 93rd mechanized that was already Ford deployed. And we didn't have to wait for contracts either. We just uh, went directly to the FOB, signed contracts right there and got rifles like the day after we arrived. The Wild West, brother. Yeah. And how, and how did that, that then go from there? Um, it went pretty well. Um, we ended up having issues with the rest of our group, not really um, being a good fit for the unit because it was mostly like medics at that point and uh, they didn't have a good way to integrate us. So we were there for about a month and uh, did our time in the, uh, on the front line. And then that's when I went to my uh, second unit where I spent the rest of my service for like around six months. Yeah. Right. And as a combat medic, what were the most like um, prevalent injuries or, what you're dealing with the most blast injuries it's so many blast related injuries um almost every single person i treated either had uh, some like shrapnel in them or uh a tbi hmm. it was overwhelmingly blast injuries and how was you know a blast injury like that you use a shitload of stores um from everything from burns and bleeds bloody everything uh, even down to, um, I'm guessing, um, 
even spinal. Uh, how yeah. the maintenance of actually keeping stores up in, I guess, mass casualty scenarios fairly common often. Yeah, well, I, I was I was both lucky and unlucky. So I, I was unlucky in the sense of um, I never had or almost never had less than two to three patients at one time. So whenever um, I, I never went uh, physically like into combat on my second rotation, um, I was mostly doing like a medevac. But um, every single time I got called out, I would have multiple patients. It would always be anywhere from like two to eight guys. Um, the good part is that most of these injuries were minor. Almost everyone I uh, ended up treating would fall under a uh, walking wounded. Um, it was just lots of like little really tiny pieces of shrapnel that a lot of times like the guys wouldn't even know was in them until I checked. It was like, oh, you got you got something here. And then lots of TBIs. So I was doing lots of TBI assessments. And um, that was the most of it. I did have one incident where there was a missile strike very close to where I was. Um, and I had a guy with a more severe TBI and a broken nose that was bleeding everywhere. Um, that was kind of a messy one. But other than that, like... I got super lucky. No, nothing really bad happened where I was directly responsible for managing it. Um, other people like on my med on the medical team I was on were not as lucky. There was um, my team leader actually had a 36 person Mascal physically inside Bachmut. Um, <laughs> Fuck. But yeah. And can you give the, the viewers a, an idea of how much equipment that I combat medic would actually carry like how for for a you know prior one has how much would you actually carry just to put that number i guess in in perspective i know i know it's, it's the variance on what they've got is is great but yeah. how many could you realistically treat well let me put it this way right so normally i carry about five tourniquets with me in various forms right um now normally for certain like basic supplies you also can rely on like the ifacs of the people you're treating but you can go through let's say you're really unlucky one person can end up with five tourniquets on them yeah. <laughs> um i normally carry like um generally like four chest seals total so that's two patients right there um i did carry a, a that being said uh four chest seals is actually eight chest seals because uh, you can use the packages with tape to make more chest seals um, but the, the place where I'm generally most limited is, uh, medications. Um, for example, I carried like a two to four grams of TXA. That's one to two patients, maybe four patients. If you only give each one a gram and, uh, rely on the, uh, casualty collection point or, um, roll, roll one to give them more. Um, I had like, uh, some drugs are also just really rare here. For example, I only had one vial of midazolam, so or one ampule of midazolam, which is 10 milligrams, which should be enough for two patients. But the reality is you don't use it that often. So if I have to give it to someone for a seizure or something like that, that's it. It's gonna I'm going to have to chuck the rest. Uh, that's and, and there's just also a limited amount of space for narcs. So um, I, with like a... Uh, with both of my aid bags, because I carry two normally, a smaller one that's my first line that's basically a really big fanny pack that I can easily swing around and work out of without taking it off, 
and then my primary aid bag, which is substantially larger and has some has an eye gel and some other large stuff in it. Um, I would say that I can handle two badly injured patients. Yeah. And after that, I'm going to have to start making difficult choices about who gets what. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say that um, the current TTRIC curriculum and standards struggle with is prolonged field care because in NATO, you assume rapid evacuation from the battlefield in general. Your evac times are measured in minutes, not hours, and certainly not days. Um, the, the shortest evac time I ever had when I was deployed was uh, four hours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that was um, that was on my first deployment. And essentially, like, if you get hit, they'll send a Kamaz. The Kamaz will probably get to you in like two to three hours. Then it's another hour to two hour drive to the stabilization point. And also, it's not proper medical evacuation. It was literally just an open Kamaz truck in January in Donetsk Oblast, where it is extremely cold. And when it came to the actual position too, we didn't really have anywhere where we could stabilize a casualty. The holes were small enough that it was hard to lay someone all the way out and certainly not realistic to have space to work much next to them. It was very cold. There were limited supplies for keeping people warm. You can't sort of fire out there unless you want to get immediately blown up. And so the reality was that if anyone got severely injured there, um, their chances were not good. And there were actually instances where people got injured and then they were more injured during evacuation than they were when they initially got blown up just because of the uh, truck bouncing over the road and basically throwing them around in the back and breaking bones. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was something we heard about a lot from Bakhmut was that the Medivac, Kazavac just was just not to the standard that people would expect. And I think a lot of guys coming across from Western militaries where we were in Afghanistan, you have the golden hour that you can be basically anywhere on the battlefield to on a, on a table in a role two facility. A role two is more like a, a just not to you, but to someone out there, like a role one is more like a field medical facility, role two, and then you two alpha run right through. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this is more than like a hospital with surgical capability. Um, yeah. It's no, been, the role two can offer like proper damage control or resuscitation and stuff yeah. like that. So, um, but we could be in a role two, or I think a role two echo even, um, which is like full surgical capability within an hour, um, where guys roll out to this and they're like, oh no, no, like you've said, it's, it's hours. And then one of the big things you learn, at least on my, um, advanced medical trauma course, what you speak of about, you have enough for a couple of guys, but if you've got 30 casualties, then you're going through the process we call sort and sieve of who can I actually save? And burns take a, so much stores, leading takes a lot of stores, and it's like who yeah. who's actually savable um, in this? And they're you know stories which were theories at one point rundown of where you could have a situation like this, and you see guys like yourself and and your mates, you know, really doing it. Yeah, um, I mean, for Bakhmut near the end, uh, evac wait times could be as long as 16 hours because you were not running evac during daylight hours. Um, you could only run uh, evacuation vehicles in at night. So if um, someone got injured like in the morning, he's going to be sitting there until like 11 p.m. Wow. And is there any like stories of 
you know, losing someone or something that really stick with you? Um, not for me personally. Uh, I've heard some stories of people likely dying unnecessarily, but that had to do more with the training limitations, the medics that, um, cared for them rather than, uh, available resources necessarily although I, I will say that a lot of people have lost limbs due to um the lack of information on tourniquet conversion as well as the overuse in some instances of tourniquets and the very long evac times i uh I, i've seen a lot of pictures of people with like clearly destroyed legs because they've had tourniquets on almost like up at the hips Oh, that's uh, sorry. You just froze there for a second. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. You said um, tourniquets up to the hips. That's where where it froze. Yeah. So like they um, so they'd have tourniquets all the way up at the hips, and they just basically have to have everything below the tourniquet amputated. And I think one thing that the next um, iteration of the TTRC guidelines really needs to include is a larger emphasis on early and aggressive tourniquet conversion, right. because the assumption that you can just slap that thing on, leave it there, and not worry about it too much. Uh, because the guy's going to have it off in an hour anyways, and it's, he's going to be good for four, that might not apply in a future peer or near-peer conflict. Um, for what it's worth, uh, the T-Tri-C guidelines do currently teach combat medics that um, you should attempt to convert the tourniquet or relocate it lower on the limb as soon as the situation allows, if possible. But I think that's just an element that really needs to be beaten on more and potentially... Uh, tourniquet conversion as a skill is something that should be included in uh, a lower level of training like combat lifesaver i mean i i know it's it, i know it's dicey but a lot of people have been losing limbs that really don't need to yeah i think too this assumption at least in um the west in the, the west like the nato stuff that i've done there's almost this assumption of air superiority. Like, and I've talked about this in, in a lot of combat scenarios too, that we assume that we will have air dominance superiority of the sky. What means mm -hmm. choppers are coming in, vehicles can move in the daylight. You've got good counter battery. You've got suppression of elements. And, you, and like you've said, with like your prolonged casualty care, that just may not be, just may not be the case um, that there needs to be more emphasis on actually packaging these casualties you know putting space blankets on them keeping them warm packaging them correctly in case there's something else hits it's one of those things which i don't think is is touched on enough a lot of these scenario based medical things you'll run is you know you're you're in contact you know they put a tourniquet on themselves you drag them behind cover you give them some fluids you might put another tourniquet on you may do some quick clock whatever drag them back into an area okay sweet um your simulated helicopter is rocked up it's off for the dog and you're like, Oh, that's, that's good. That's it. And it's this element of that just may not be the case in any conventional war that's relevant to training. Um, there's no, that could, and for a whole amount of issues. But if we think that we're going to have the same superiority of the air we had in the last 20 years of war in the West compared to the next 20 years, we're kidding ourselves. <laughs> I mean, on one hand, I don't think we'll have as much air superiority, but on the other hand, if we've learned anything from uh, Russia, it's that they're still basically at a 1980s tech level when it comes to their Air Force. So, 
might be less of a problem than anticipated. Uh, I know China has much better aircraft than Russia, but um, well, yes and no. So they they do actually have fifth generation air, uh, fighter jets. The issue is that they're not necessarily particularly good, and all of their not fifth generation stuff is just like flanker clones. Essentially, they just knock off the Su twenty seven. So they look good. The the, the Su twenty seven is a yeah. sexy aircraft. Though. I've always said, what we oh no, need, it is. It... We need we need to get Lockheed and Boeing. We need the the guys that the Russian designer just who build the outside and like this is how it's going to look, and then yeah. we'll do all the internals. <laughs> it's it's a little yeah. bit like Lamborghini and, and Audi. It's like okay, Lamborghini, the Italians, you design the outside, then we'll do everything inside, and then we'll have a good car now. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, the problem with the Su-27, though, is it has an absolutely fucking massive radar cross-section. <laughs> yeah. It, it does not have the stealthiest shape. And America actually achieved uh, doing everything the Su-27 does, but better with the S uh, F-22. It's just as, if not more maneuverable, and it doesn't show up on radar. So, yeah. or at least yeah. not very much. And it also was too expensive. So yeah, yeah. that's why we got the F-35. That's that's the healthcare problem. Um, did did you ever you or any of your mates uh, actually treat any any Russian soldiers or you know you walking around uh, Bakhmut? Do you end up treating any um, Wagner PMC guys? Um, no, I did not. I'm pretty sure it's happened before, but that never happened. Um, I think uh part of the um part of what it comes down to is at least all the um places we were the lines of contact were not, at least on my first rotation, the lines of contact were like uh, 700 meters apart. And so no one was really getting across no, man land, no man's land there. It was frozen. And then for Bakhmut and stuff like that, the situation's like so desperate and so chaotic that no one's, no one's taking like injured prison. No one, there, there's no means for people to take prisoners or collect wounded or anything like that because it's it's just not realistic it's not happening um but i I know it has happened just not to anyone i know yeah right right and you know where do you see this conflict going because there's definitely been you know the the ukrainian counteroffensive the long-awaited counteroffensive that you know sadly for a lot of people had you know a very a bit of a rocky start and then a bit of a fizzle ending where how does it feel you know you've got your finger on the pulse there I'm not asking for some big tactical breakdown because, you know, we know that's generals sure. doing that. But how does... I'm not an officer. Does, yeah, exactly. You know, that, that's why you're a decent bloke and I don't have to bloody call you sir. No, I'm you know, eating cucumber sandwiches. Um, but how, how has the mood in Ukraine changed or the mood amongst soldiers shifted now that we're seeing Russia sort of back on the offensive and making some ground? Um... It's hard to say. I've been out of the military for a little bit now. Um, I was planning on going back uh, this um, last few months, but it just ended up not happening. The same deal. Tried to join a unit. Everything fizzled out and uh, just got another job, essentially. But um, from at least the way I look at it, sort of Ukraine is at a crossroads right now. And that's dependent on, um, on uh, basically the arrival of F-16s. And on the other decisions by uh, Europe and the United States on providing more military aid, um, Ukraine needs air power. Like the reality is, um, if you have two dug in, basically militaries that have fully entrenched themselves, unless one side has a 
substantial technological advantage to break up the stalemate, you're not going to have any meaningful movement of the lines one way or another until one side or the other faces such a high level of attrition that they are essentially no longer capable of manning those positions. Like, look at uh, the Western Front in World War One. Did anyone ever break through the lines in that war and decisively push on anything, really, after it set in? No, the lines would move a few hundred meters this way, then a few hundred meters that way, and it stayed that way throughout the entire war until eventually just Germany couldn't really keep sustaining it, and they went to the negotiating table. Like, it's... So... If Russia loses the ability to defend their airspace and Ukraine can begin running um, a large number of sorties to conduct airstrikes on Russian positions, that would meaningfully change the tide of the war. That would unstick the lines and get things moving. But if the status quo remains where air power is used sparingly by both sides and all of the fighting is basically being done by ground elements, I, we're going to be stuck here for a while. Yeah. And what's your plan in the next coming months to return to fight to keep training guys? Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm willing to uh, go and train people if I have a good opportunity. Um, I'm open to uh, potentially re-enlisting at some point in the next year, maybe like next spring or something like that. I, I already did one winter deployment. I really don't want to do another one. It's too cold. <laughs> um, but uh Realistically, I, I suspect that my days of serving in the military are over. Um, there's uh, not a lot. Um, I, I've been I've been finding it pretty hard just to get back with a decent unit. And I mean, for me at least, I it's a struggle because I mean I, I have a fiance and she gets upset when I uh, and I understand why she gets upset when I. Um, I'm away from home like that. And it's just, I've been struggling to find a place to go to recently. Um, and I just, at this stage, I'm very, very picky about what I do. Um, I, I don't mind taking risks. The key is I have to know that I'm taking those risks for a reason. And my last deployment was emotionally very difficult because I repeatedly was ending up in situations where we were assuming large amounts of risk, but there was no tactically meaningful objective for these operations. And there's a limit to how much I can uh, justify continuing to do that. And there's the other reality, too, that the Ukrainian army now is not the Ukrainian army that existed when the war started. And by that, I mean that the Ukrainian military now is much more experienced than it was before. And so on a certain level, I feel like there's less of a need for me specifically to be there because now they have so many more people that have been trained to a Western standard. That's, it's, it's a very interesting um, way to put it. The, the, the training, I guess, from your, your perspective has actually worked in that, in that favor. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, and especially when you, what I'm getting at with this too is the language barrier makes it much harder for me to do my job because being a combat medic is fairly technical in terms of like you're giving narcotics, you're potentially doing advanced procedures. And part of 
being a good provider is doing a good job of handling, transferring your patients to a higher level of care. And it can be hard to do that properly when you lack the language skills to properly explain to the doctor what you have actually had to do to that patient. Yeah. Um, I know we have casualty cards and stuff like that that are like bilingual casualty cards sometimes, but oftentimes that's not enough. And it just, once again, if there was the same medic shortage that existed where there are not like medics trained to a NATO standard here, I would be like, well, I'll just do what I did before. But the reality is that Ukraine is actually standardized on T-Tri-C as their um, four protocols. Like now Ukrainian medics are trained on giving ketamine, whole blood, doing surgical crikes. And they have this in their scope of practice if they've attended the proper training, which is increasingly widely available. So like I'm, I'm no one special, right? I'm not some sort of super high speed 18 Delta soft medic. So I can contribute a similar level of care to a lot of the newly trained Ukrainian medics, and I can't speak the language properly. So there's a limit to how much I can fit in at this stage, I think. Yeah, yeah. Over, over your time in Ukraine, how much corruption or has the effect of corruption affected not only the units, but also then rolling through to effect on the front line? Um, it's really, really hard to say, honestly, um, because some, some of the bullshit you'll experience here is as much attributable to occasionally just, um, ineptitude as it is corruption. It's, it's not like, it's not like, uh, for example, the taking eternity to get paperwork done. Is that corruption or is it just because the people filing the paperwork don't care and nothing will happen to them if they don't do their jobs? Um, honestly, in terms of equipment, I haven't seen an issue with like, uh, cause I know one of the main canards I see on Instagram all the time is people claim that Ukraine is selling off all the weapons it gets and stuff like that. I'm very confident that is not true. And the reason for that is that when it came to getting, when for the most part it's come to getting weapons or ammunition, it has never been an issue in any Ford deployed unit. It's not, no one's running out of um, like uh, uh, N-Laws, AT4s, M72s. Um, when I was with my last unit, I was issued like a CZ Bren 2. There was, uh, there wasn't really a problem with that. Um, I would say one really good example where you will find uh, corruption or at least uh, nepotism though is cars the way cars are handled. So one massive issue with the Ukrainian military as a whole is the concept of slots. So every unit is allotted a certain number of personnel, a certain number of weapons, a certain number of vehicles and all that. And if they're at their maximum allotment for something like vehicles, the unit cannot actually formally accept donations of more vehicles because it has it's at capacity for vehicles. The issue is it will be at capacity for vehicles, but those vehicles will get issued out to people that don't need them. So for example, guys that work in admin, um, like senior NCOs, people, people that like should not be issued vehicles will get these vehicles. And then teams that are actually running CASVAC will struggle to get issued vehicles to the point where they'll have to like get donations and then maintain their own ones. And so it's, it's, I would say it's at least 
the form of corruption that I've seen most has been misallocation of certain resources based on essentially favoritism rather than like outright like theft and grift, if that makes sense. Yeah, you can say that with equipment too. From from my time in Ukraine and speaking to a lot of guys, that you'll have one unit with all this Gucci shit, like all the shit, and then a unit just down the road with nothing. And it's like, how does it's like territorial defense guys in Lviv that all have PVS thirty ones at a checkpoint? Yes, yeah, the best the best fitted soldiers that were the best fitted guys in the whole of Ukraine are in Lviv. From weapons nods and stuff I've seen, and it's like, well, you're you're not actively up against the russians fighting yeah no all, all those guys like it, it wouldn't make a difference if they all had the worst most beat to shit ak's and available in the country like you're not getting into gunfights bro like and from your experience how how competent is uh the the russian ground forces that you, you your boys have fought at, fought against in places like bakhmut from Wagner or or against the average Russian. I know there's a large scope. I know, you know, in like the yeah. Australian American army, infantryman is an infantryman. Like, yeah, there's better and worse guys, but they're all at a standard and the standard does this, where the Russians seem to have this among units. But how how is the competence? Um, well, that's that's like there's a huge fucking gulf. Um so I actually met a, a um a scottish uh former i think sas sniper or something like that and he was legit like um he uh he event he ran out of patience here after like uh, a month and a half or so and then went and now getting paid like a thousand dollars a day doing some contract in the middle east or some shit from the last i heard but anyways the way he explained it after Bush and urban is that like it's truly a crapshoot like at one end you have mobics reservists um and just like the conventional russian infantry guys and he said, like, the way he described it is those guys are basically, like, useless. Um, you'll find them, like, by a fire with their rifle 10 meters away. And, and, and the way he described them was basically a good for padding your numbers. And then on the other end, you have, like, the professional special operations guys. And those guys are very, very good. They will properly move, clear rooms, react to contact, set up complex ambushes. And are actually very, very dangerous. And, he's, and he said that, like, during, um, I believe it was Erpin, he ran into a team of those guys. And the way he described it, it was a real fight. And he's happy that he was able to get away from it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it, it it's purely a crapshoot. Like, um, one thing the Russians do that's surprisingly effective that doesn't get much press is um, along the uh, trench lines, they like to run these um, VSS teams at night. So the VSS is this sort of suppressed rifle intended for like uh urban sort of sniping it's not it's not long range because it shoots a a subsonic round but um it's very very quiet and it shoots a very large bullet and the way the russians use it is they have three-man teams they have two guys with vss rifles and thermal scopes and a spotter and then both snipers will fire on one target simultaneously from a surprisingly long range and there's actually a lot of videos out there of them just killing guys that think they can go out and take a piss at 2 a.m. because it's dark out and successfully hitting them. And I actually had those guys try to shoot me. Um, I uh, It was 2 in the morning. I'd gotten out of the foxhole I was in to uh, piss on a tree, and I just heard a thump, thump. I was like, hmm, that's, that's odd. So um, I went back down to the hole, went back to sleep. Next morning I get up, and... Uh, 
one of the other guys with me said, oh, hey, I talked to the guy at the OP. Uh, there are some, there's a guy with a VSS shooting at you last night. I was like, great. Why didn't you tell me? Oh, he called it out on the radio. That's great. He's the only person here that has a radio. <laughs> but yeah, I'm pretty sure I was just saved by like a really nasty crosswind over the valley or something like that. Because uh, I've seen a lot of really concerning videos of uh, those guys killing people. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've I've seen seen very similar. That shit can work. I think uh, I think Grand Thumb has a really good video on the VSS. I think it's him. Uh, breaks down breaks down that system and how it works. Um, how yeah. is your feeling as a, as an American who spent a lot of time in Ukraine and fighting and treating? How is your feeling towards the average Russian soldier? Um, not very positive. Um. I mean, I know that, like, the conditions they fight in are horrendous and their command doesn't care about them, but there have been enough instances of people, like, uh, shooting up recruiting offices in Russia or, like, lighting them on fire that it's like, you know, if you know you're going to die going to Ukraine and you don't want to, you have options for doing something about it. Like, I, I don't buy the whole just following orders or I was mobilized or whatever. Like, no, they they know, like... Everyone has a choice. It might not be a fun choice, but ultimately, all of these people, when they're conscripted or mobilized, have a choice, which is comply or do not comply. The issue is both of those choices involve bad things happening. Like, yeah, if you go and blow up the recruiting officer, stab your recruiter or whatever, you'll get shot or you'll go to prison. But it's not like your chances of survival in the Russian trenches are great either. So I... For me, the way I look at it is that they're basically making a choice where they think they have a slightly higher chance of being alive if they go and do something really shitty. So they choose to do that. And that's the key. They choose to go and do something shitty. And so, uh, yeah. And also, like, most of the war crimes being committed here are not being done by, like, special units or something like that. It's just endemic culturally within their military. If anything, um, the more pro the more professional units like the uh, GRU guys or the FSB guys are the ones that don't do that shit nearly as much because they're more focused on actually they they are they are actual professional soldiers. But I would not characterize most of Russia's military as professionals. Um, just it's a bunch of conscripts with uh, limited moral compasses and I guess an axe to grind with anyone that's not as unhappy as they are. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about coming across those more highly trained, more deadly units. And I, I tell this to people in my side of the fence now, like journalism, that you'd much rather come across one of these more professional units than a bunch of just shitbag guys sitting on a checkpoint somewhere. That's the dangerous bit is these young kids, young conscripts, whatever, with a rifle. Like I'd much rather come across these better units somewhere than like these and I always tell other people in, in my line of work like oh no it's just a checkpoint with a couple of guys guns and I'm like no 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 be careful of that like like when I was in I was in Israel uh, last month I'm like no this checkpoint with these random young kids on it who have just got put a, a weapon in their hands that's what you need to be careful of these Shayet 13 guys these Golani brigade guys they're like they're door kickers don't worry about them they're not going to accidentally shoot you if you drive up in your car you need to be careful of this other end of the under other end of the spectrum, even if it seems counterintuitive. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Like all of the, like the scariest experiences I had just previously traveling and stuff like that. 
it was like checkpoints are the ones that like especially when you're in a vehicle checkpoints are always the ones that are the sketchiest because people can just get super twitchy and then once one guy starts start shooting everyone else starts shooting no matter what the reason is and yeah yeah no points around ukraine can be the same you're like oh shit like who's who's this lad on this like fuck (laughs) yeah um for what it's worth though i will say that uh, i've seen a i don't watch a lot of war crime footage anymore i did when i was still doing the journalism thing but i i I decided that like once i transitioned more away from that i was like there's no reason to put myself through watching this um but from what i have seen of the footage out there none of like at least the really well publicized footage of uh, russian soldiers committing horrible war crimes involved any of their soft guys at least from what i've seen if they're they they probably are doing it but at least they're not recording it so yeah like it's always like the Mobit contingent or Wagner types, which are basically just mostly prisoners. So, I mean, oh, actually, that reminds me. Have you seen the stuff about how uh, Wagner has uh, rebranded? Yes. Um, I was reading that only yesterday, I think, on our Warstar Atlas. They've rebranded into like the African Corps or something. I... Africa Corps, which is the exact same name that the uh, German Expeditionary Force to Africa used during World War II. Uh, well, um, uh, Wagner Wagner was the um, Hitler's favorite um, producer or composer, wasn't he? Yeah, no, I just think it's funny that uh, Russia, part of Russia's propaganda is how they're uh, allegedly uh, fighting Nazis in Ukraine. But like, They've rebranded Wagner as something even more overtly Nazi-related, and they can't even pull the excuse of, well, we never noticed Dmitry Utkin's SS tattoos because Dmitry Utkin's been dead for like four months now. Yeah. So. Oh, it's crazy, man. It, it, it is a funny, it's a funny part of the world, though, where we see in Russia, in Ukraine, in other, even other countries, Eastern Bloc, we do see a lot of like um, sympathetic Nazi shit. I remember that, you know, of course you see it uh, on some Ukrainian patches is this and that. And then, but on the other side of the fence where Russia will go, oh, well, it's all this, all this. And then you see a photo of inside like the VDV bloody gymnasium. And there was uh, like Nazi symbology. And you're like, well, hang on. (laughs) Like, you know, it's, 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 but I think too, and I'm not being a, I think any of that symbology is disgusting. It's shocking. I've no time for it. But there is this almost law to it now of people like having it that is more symbolic than if they actually, they they don't agree with it, but the symbol is there. I I probably don't have the best English for it, Um, but but you you can find photos of a bloody Australian Bushmaster, like the same ones we've had in Ukraine, in Afghanistan with a bloody swastika on. Um, now I can tell you that those guys are not bloody Nazis. And I think that there's a lot of uh, people with the symbols don't exactly align with the message. Now that we've moved that, you know, 80 years on that said, I don't agree with the symbols ever being used, but yeah, yeah I've had a few guys explain to me. It's more about the symbology rather than the message of that, but you need to be very careful with the conflation. Yeah. I think that um, there, there's a few elements to it. First of all, I think that some of it is a bit of a piss take where basically people are saying, well, uh, if you're accusing us of being Nazis, we might as well just go with the bit. Um, especially, I think the, the form of this that I always thought was the funniest was seeing um, the German leopards and leopard twos painted with the Balkenkreuz. Because yeah. um, that's, you, you can see the joke there about German tanks fighting uh, Russians on the Eastern Front. Yeah. But um 
Another element that I don't think gets discussed much is the Soviet Union uh, made fighting Nazis like a key part of their national identity after World War II, right? But they never actually really talked about what the Nazis did that was so bad because um, they basically did the same thing. So obviously they're not going to say like stripping people of their individual rights, uh, persecuting people for their ethnicities, uh, like mass killings and forced relocations of people are wrong because the Soviet Union does all those things. So Nazi essentially became just a catch all of anything for anything the Soviet Union opposed. And my understanding is that actually in the 1980s, um, Soviet punks started wearing uh, Nazi related symbols not because they even necessarily had any understanding of what the Nazis really did, but so much for the reason that it was socially transgressive. That being said, I'm not going to give people a pass in this day and age for that anymore because, like, the internet exists. You, you, you can Google this shit. Like, it's, I, I'd say it's an explanation, but it's not an excuse, and it's not something I would endorse personally or ever want to be associated with. No, no, absolutely. And, and what has been your experience with that in Ukraine? Because I know there's a zero to a hundred of guys I speak to who are like, oh yeah, I served in this battalion and it was huge. And I've served guys who are like, man, I've never bloody seen it. What's your experience with that sort of symbology been? I would say that for the most part, the furthest right-wing European people that I've encountered, um, with maybe a couple of exceptions, they're generally more willing to use a uh, language that is considered unacceptable in the United States, but a lot of them also have uh, less extreme beliefs than a lot of American conservatives. <laughs> like it's really, really surreal. Um, I've run into guys here with Nazi tattoos and stuff like that, that if you talk to them about politics, they have like more moderate political opinions in a lot of ways than like the average enthusiastic Trump voter but they'll also like just use the N word constantly. It's it's this really weird dichotomy where there's like, it's it's honest. It's it's really weird because in some ways they'll use worse language, but then in other ways be less aggressively racist than some people from the English speaking world who will still not use that language. It's it's a really interesting phenomenon, and it just shows sort of how much I would say the anglophone political world has diverged from the rest of the developed world in a lot of ways. Oh, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting, but you got to remember think something like the N word, for example, in America holds a, sh a shitload of power because yeah. of the history of that word there. And we have similar words in Australia with the indigenous Australians where to, to Eastern Europe, the N words like this thing they see in movies and rap. It, it wasn't that. It, yeah. Because there's there's words we would we may use that in uh, other cultures it's like no you can't use that like and same with the Americans if I say the c word which I want to say on YouTube mm. but Americans yeah. it's it's like whoa and I'm like I'm Australian it's like part of my it's part of my <laughs> ethnicity but um yeah there's I I, I do agree with you for my months I've spent in Ukraine that some, yeah there's some of the language some of the colorful language like whoa but um. Yeah, it's a lot of colorful language, but I, I'm a white dude, so I can't say I've, I haven't been discriminated against. But um, like I, I never have felt any anything like that. It, it's it's a funny one. It, it is a funny, yeah. abyss, conservative, progressive, just different backgrounds, different people. And you, yeah. I think you have to remember too that I always call it the Soviet hangover. That 
Ukraine 30 years ago was part of the Soviet Union. And I think I think just as dangerous, just as dangerous, this glorification I see of of Nazis in Germany is this glorification of the Soviet Union from people. And I see a lot of young guys in the West doing it. Uh, and I see a lot of, like, we well, see it bloody everywhere with Russian Soviet flags. And you're like, none of you obviously understand what this actually was. You, you listen to some of the songs and you hear about the glory, the glory of it. Read the Gulag Archipelago. Like, look into what actually happened here. The tens of millions that, or hundreds of millions that starved, the tens of millions that died of starvation and in the Gulags. And, the, like, this is not, don't think it was better then. It, 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 even Putin has admitted it was not better then. Like, and if he's admitting that, trust me, it's not for anyone. But there's this graduation goggles that you look back on things as better than it was. And you're like, no, 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 that was fucking unbelievable yeah I, I think what a lot of these people do is they um get halfway there and what i mean by that is that they begin like uh reading material or history that's outside of what is normally taught in schools or outside what the media normally reports on and they become more aware of some of the um more unfortunate things the united states has done and the fact that sometimes we as a culture are not entirely honest with ourselves about them for example a lot of things the cia did during the cold war and latin america and stuff like that and so they developed this worldview that basically boils down to america bad and so then they also adopt the corollary of well if america's bad that must mean that america's enemies are actually good and so they go in basically saying oh well we need to america needs to stop doing all this so i'm going to support russia and china which are left-wing communist countries that do all this thing but they just are falling in for the propaganda of places that are even worse like does the united states government have the best foreign policy no if i lived in a third-party neutral country would i rather be invaded by russia or china than the united states absolutely not like the United States and NATO have rules of engagement. Like, yes, there is collateral damage. No, that is not acceptable. But the reality is, like, if an F-16 pilot makes a mistake and blows up someone's farm, the United States will normally, like, pay a substantial amount of money out to the people that lost their homes or livestock or whatever to actually make up for that. Like, if an American soldier is caught shooting um, someone, that guy's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. In Russia, this behavior is encouraged. And it, it's the same deal where, like, China is not American, no, but if you ever actually go to China and spend a meaningful amount of time there, you'll quickly come to realize that society can get so much worse when it comes to surveillance, lack of civil rights, and... Also, a lot of these places are just as racist, if not more racist and oppressive than the United States. Like um, the Soviet Union talked about equality and racism in the West and stuff like that. But at the same time, they repeatedly deported other non-Russian ethnicities from territory they took to Siberia and then replaced them with ethnic Russians like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Crimea. They do this over and over and over and over again. And functionally, the Soviet Union could claim to be multicultural and all that, but fundamentally, it was a Russian Slavic ethno-nationalist state. China does the exact same thing with the Han Chinese, where everything is focused around Beijing, 
and the Han Chinese that live there and control everything, and every other ethnic group and um, all of their languages, cultures, and the like are actively suppressed. Like, it's not just an issue with Tibet or the Uyghurs. It's also like now they're starting to target Mongolians and stuff like that. It's like these places are horrible. And for all the problems the West has, there there are not like active government programs trying to openly eradicate cultures in the name of creating this singular unified culture built around the one ethnic group that gets to participate in politics. So Oh, you're hundred percent you're hundred percent right. I always say to people, people that just think America, Australia, the UK, people that think these are the most racist countries on earth. I'm like, you need to travel a bit more. Go to basically anywhere in the world and you will see far worse or read a bit of history. And I'm not saying that then for we don't make strides to make this better, but I'm saying, you know, we're, we're a fucking lot better than the majority of the world. And you see this in these ultra left, um, uh, protests, you see them carrying hammer and sickle flags next to a rainbow flag. And you're like, uh, well, you can do that here. Try, try, go to St. Petersburg and, and do this. See how that goes for you. Don't tell me that this is, yeah, and it's just this watering down of what that history actually is. Um, it, it's, a, I think it's a very, I think it's a very dangerous thing. And we need to come, and I, I, I spoke to you before this, this whole truth cannot damage a just cause. And I think this, you know, there's, there's truths that are hard truths in, in Ukraine as well. And I believe Ukraine's fight is a just cause of defense, which everyone from you at a pub to a country, a state, has the right to self-defense, but yeah. that Ukraine has problems with um, a systemic corruption. It has problems with, you know, far right things. We need to like look at that in the eye and go, yep, that exists. And that also needs to be stamped out along with this other stuff as far as progression here and not just, you know, swept under the rug. Yeah. Um, my main concern though, and uh, about being honest about this sometimes is that uh, people, at least from what I've seen in the United States, will constantly seize on every single example of any form of uh, malfeasance as proof that supporting Ukraine is a bad idea. Where whenever there's a discussion about military aid or something like that, they'll dredge up every single niche issue they potentially can and say, oh, this is why we shouldn't do it. And at least in the United States right now, it has hit this critical mass where they are very much struggling to pass another aid package. And there's currently an artillery shell shortage here. And, and so it's like, on one hand, I don't think the truth can damage a just cause. On the other hand, I think that there's going to be a time and place to talk about that. But focusing on that too much at this stage is actually damaging. Um, and it's, I don't know. I, I feel really torn on this because on one hand, I do believe that you should have open an open society and honest criticism of the government. But on the other hand, I, I really dislike the sometimes negative impact it can have when you are actively in a state of total war. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's difficult, isn't it? When, when you are actively yeah. at war, it's like, yeah, but we're trying to fight this whole other thing. What is the most, uh, what is the most dangerous critical thing we've got right now and it's the soldiers on yeah. our border and yeah and i i agree with you it's, it's a very hard one but of course it's going to be pushed and you know i i believe personally i believe this week what is it tuesday evening here so it's monday i show tuesday morning in america i think this week is the most important week in this whole war other than the very first yeah. week of actually you know 
pushing back on that brunt of the Russian invasion. Uh, I think that this week, if, if a deal doesn't get done through Congress Senate Friday, I think that could set a bit of a, a sort of riff or a ripple effect for the next 12 months. And I think, I think this is the most crazy week in this whole thing because, of course, they go on Christmas leave. Well, Congress actually went on leave last Friday, but they're back sitting this week to make this decision. And I think this is a incredibly critical week. And I haven't looked into it today, but yeah. at the moment, it doesn't look like something's going to get passed over the over the holiday break. I yeah. believe it will. I think at the, at the last minute that something will. But, yeah, it, and it's going to be used in in political stands. You know, people are going to use all these you know, these examples of corruption or um, a battlefield effect not being what we thought it was, and we'll use that to their advantage, their voter pool, and push on where they're trying to get themselves politically. And I think, yeah, I think Ukraine is, I think this is a very, very important week for Ukraine. Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping that something gets passed, dude, because when you start, like, artillery and stuff like that is really important and the more the stuff gets delayed like these delays actually kill people like pe- people die when necessary equipment doesn't get where it needs to be w- will that equipment stop everyone from dying no are more people going to die than they would otherwise without it absolutely like it's concerning yeah mate is there um is there anything you think we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on any stories any treatment any Dickheads on the media, anything? Um, there's nothing particularly big that I can think of. Um, I, I think that covers most of it. Uh, yeah. Awesome. And and um, where's the best place? I'll put your link to your Instagram and stuff below, but is there anything you'd like Thank to you. see people coming across and saying hello? Um, yeah. Um, and that's for uh, just other foreigners that might want to come and uh, fight for Ukraine. Uh, Do your research ahead of time and have like an actual unit that you know will take you and has a reasonable recruiting pipeline before you get here. Because um, it's very easy to end up in paperwork limbo where you end up waiting two or three months just to get your contract done if you don't have that fully established in place ahead of time. If you have the right unit lined up you can have your contract done in like two weeks or something like that and be training immediately afterwards pretty much if you don't do that prep work ahead of time and network properly you're going to end up burning a lot of money just sitting around and this is one that i learned the hard way repeatedly yeah well mate Look, it's been 90, 95 minutes. Thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. And um, for sitting and have a chat, open on us with me. Thank you. It's a Thanks. great time. Oh, mate. No, pleasure is mine. If you ever need anything, reach out. And if you ever want to get back on and chat chat shit or chat war, please feel free. It's always open to you and your buddies. Huh. I'd definitely be open to that. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, mate. You stay safe over there. Yeah, thank you.